You know, there's a question that is repeated a lot. It's a question you've heard. You've heard it from a friend, from a family member, a co-worker. It's a question that, that seems to stump us. A question we don't always feel very comfortable answering. And it's this question, where was God when that happened? If God is loving and God is in control, then why, why that? Now, if we're just in a debate, if we're in the classroom or we're having a, a philosophical exchange, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. And we, we kind of duke it out there and work through and try to get to an answer. But, you know, it's a whole nother thing when you're trying to answer where was God when maybe you're watching the news and you see a family that has just had their little girl come home after years of being held captive by a kidnapper. Chained like an animal, sexually abused day after day after day. See, it's a whole other question, a whole other issue to answer, ask that question then. Or, or maybe you're trying to deal with that question when you're dealing with really almost an entire continent. The continent of Africa where millions of families have, have never known anything but tribal warfare. Never known anything but, but rape and dismemberment and murder as often as a change in the weather. Or, or maybe you're dealing with a, a multitude of families. Can you imagine a moment, a single moment, where a tsunami wipes out a quarter of a million people? What about the nation of Haiti? Ransacked by an earthquake. And you do realize that's just one in a long train of natural disasters that has hit that nation. You see, it's a whole other thing to discuss that question when you're standing in that shadow. When you're dealing with those things. Now, if it is just philosophy, it is, if it is just a debate, I, I tell you a question I always like to come back with. You know, we say, where, where was God when, when that evil was going on? What about all these evil things? I mean, you take the things I just mentioned and add to them divorce and, and cancer and car accidents and layoffs. Where, where was God in that? I mean, the list of things that goes on and on and on that seems to question uh, the, the existence of God or, or maybe a deficiency of God. But can't you come right back and say, well, what about all the good? Uh, you know, where was, where, where, what about the good in this world? Because, you know, just as there's a long list of evil, there's a long list of good too. That good goes on and on and on, day after day after day. Where did the good come from? But here again, if that's just a debate. But boy, trying to point out the good when you're standing in that shadow of evil and suffering is a, another challenge still. What I want to try to do today is answer some questions that hopefully give us a little bit of endurance to stand there in the shadow of evil and suffering and hold on to God. I don't have three points that are going to all of a sudden bring great clarity and understanding to the Holocaust and murder and an abusive parent. I, I don't have a magic bullet that, that just wins the debate when somebody's throwing one natural disaster, one human tragedy after another in your face. What I do have is what God has said about this. I want to try to answer five questions today. Really answering three, the last two are just kind of clean up. Uh, but the first question I want to answer is, does God know we're struggling with this? D does he know this question of, of evil and suffering is a big deal? You know, answer that question. And then secondly, what is, 
What is God's answer? What does he say? How does he respond to evil? Answer the question, where did evil come from? And then lastly, just kind of hitting a couple other points. Is he in control while evil is running its course? And why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't God stop the evil and the wrong? Let's look at that first question. Does God know we're struggling with this? Now, what I mean by that, folks, is does God know we're down here and, you know, we want to be a witness for him and we want to take a stand for him. But, man, that that question of evil and wrong comes up and it always seems to stump us. Hey, God, you know, this is hard to answer. Hey, Lord, you know, a lot of people, you know, they have a hard time believing you because of this. Are you aware? Well, of course, God's aware. As a matter of fact, folks, did you know that evil and suffering is the very first thing God addresses in this book? The very first book written is the book of Job. You know, a lot of us, we open up our Bible, not all, a lot of us, all of us, we open up our Bible and the first book is Genesis. And, 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 and it starts right there in the beginning. But Genesis was not the first book written in the Bible. As a matter of fact, several hundred years before Genesis was written, The book of Job was written. 42 chapters, a long book. And all it's dealing with is one question. Where's God in the face of suffering? Where's God in the the midst of evil? So clearly God knows this is a big issue. It's the very first question he answered. Not only does God have a whole book addressing that, but all throughout Scripture, God places people as as a witness, as a lesson for you and me. He shows us people dealing with suffering, dealing with evil, how they dealt with it, how even they struggled with God with that. You know, one of my favorite, favorite Psalms is uh, Psalm 73. Really encourage you to read that uh, this week. Maybe read it a couple times. Uh, it's a great Psalm. And in that Psalm, David, who, who believes in God, who loves God, is struggling He's struggling with suffering. He's struggling with evil. And as, as the psalm opens up, he says, you know, I was, I, I, Lord, you know, I believe in you. I love you. I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to live for you. And, and you know what, God? I'm not really seeing where it's paying any benefit. I mean, I'm really suffering down here. It's, it, it's really hurting down here. And then he says, and, and by the way, God, not only am I trying to follow you and, and I'm really taking it on the chin but God, I look out there and I see people who reject you, who rebel against you, who, who don't believe in you at all. And, and God, it looks like they're doing just fine. <laughs> Lord, it seems like they're just as happy as they could be. And David, remember the guy who is described as a man after God's own heart? D- David comes to a place of, of practically saying, you know, I, I finally reached this place where I decided this, this whole following after God thing, this whole believing in God thing was adding up to a whole bunch of nothing. And he says, I grew bitter in my heart. Until he remembered. He remembered. What, what, what did he remember? He remembered the end. You see, folks, this place we're in right now, we're just in a spot. We're in a moment. You're going to kind of hear that theme coming up in some of these other answers to these questions. But David, remember this moment, what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, what it looks like evil is getting away with. This is just a moment. It's not the conclusion. There is an end. And in that end, good is rewarded. Evil is taken care of. Justice is done. Wrongs are made right. There is an end. So I will worship God. 
And he says he comes to this conclusion. He didn't say, I've got all the answers now. I've got everything figured out. I'm okay with everything. He just comes to this conclusion. This is my conclusion. God's presence. That will be my good. My good is not the circumstances and the events of this world. My good is the presence of God. That's it. So folks, God clearly knows we're struggling with this. He, he addresses it in Scripture. He puts people struggling with it in Scripture. To me, one of the things, and we talked about how this book a couple weeks ago is incomparable. But folks, when you're building a religion, a man-made religion, and you're trying to get people to follow it, you, you, you hide stuff like that. <laughs> you don't show where followers are struggling with God, where, str- where followers are accusing God. You hide stuff like that. But God doesn't hide anything because God's real. And he's dealing with real issues and what real humans deal with. So he puts it right in there for us to see. Clearly, God knows the struggle this issue is for us. Well, then that leads to the next question. Well, then what's his answer to this? What's his answer to evil? You know, as I look through Scripture, I see two primary responses of God to evil. They work together. They go together throughout Scripture. The one response is really exciting and encouraging. Fills you with hope. The other response, not so much. <laughs> the other response kind of makes you go, oh, okay. Let's look at that other response to evil first. Turn with me to that first book written, Job. Look at chapter 38. You go to Psalms in your Bible, kind of right there in the middle, the Psalms. Go back one book to your left, you'll be in Job. Job chapter 38. Familiar story, but as you're turning there, let me kind of refresh you. Job is, uh, he, he has his doctorate in suffering. Now, he didn't start off suffering. Job, Job started off with a, a healthy, wealthy, prosperous life. Man, everything was good, well-respected in the community. Good man living a good life until it all fell apart. Job experienced in one day the death of all his children. Job buried ten kids. Man, folks, you know, I think that's one of the deepest places we can go is to have to bury a child. One of the the, the places we struggle the very most, our church. Our church has certainly had to see more of its fair share of bearing children this past year. Joe buried ten kids in one day. In one day, he lost everything he had. Some of it he lost. Some of it he lost to people being bad. He lost it to evil. Some of what he lost, he lost to natural disaster. But regardless of how he lost it, he lost everything. And then following this, he loses his health. And and he begins to suffer. He has a skin disease, incredibly, incredibly painful. Hey, guess what? Job gets to a place of saying, Hey, God, what's the time out? Where are you? What's going on? Why? As he's suffering. Some friends come, truly some friends that we get, you know, the saying with friends like that, who needs enemies? These friends come to encourage him. Actually, a good word for these friends is they're church friends. There there are other believers, you know, people that that he knew, people that he related with in the in the worship of God. And they come to Job. And and as a matter of fact, he's suffering so great. They're so overwhelmed by his suffering. The scripture says when they got there, they just sat with him for seven days and nobody talked. I've seen bad suffering. Have you seen anything like that? Nobody even spoke. 
And then when they did begin to speak, they began to throw out they did the same thing that you and I do. You start throwing out cliches. You start throwing out platitudes. And his suffering was so great and so deep, he wasn't, wasn't really ready for a cliche. He wasn't really ready for a little platitude on this. And, and he responds in a way that I guess kind of irks his friends. And so now their encouragement becomes accusations. And, and folks, this goes on. I mean, this goes on from chapter 3 to chapter 37. Back and forth, back and forth. And they, and they take this incredible suffering of Job. And I, I really think, man, it's just the exclamation point. They make it about ten times worse. And in the midst of all of this dialogue, in the midst of all this suffering, the question is, where's God? Why won't God answer? Why won't God answer? Why won't God show up? And in 38, in chapter 38, God answers. In chapter 38, He shows up. And let's see what God says after all this. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this that obscures my counsel? With ignorant words. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimension? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And this line of, of thinking from the Lord goes on through the rest of chapter 38, the rest of chapter 39. Now look at chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord answered Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply twice, but now I can add nothing. God says to Job, Job, you know nothing about nothing. You are a small paragraph on one page of a 10,000 plus page story. You don't even know all that's on your one page. And yet now you a question and accuse based on knowing the beginning from the end. And you don't know either. Does that seem kind of harsh? That's, you know, that's kind of, you know, if I'm talking to God and I've been going, to, that's probably not the answer I was looking for. You know, you know, God to tell me, you don't know anything. But, you know, I really don't believe, regardless of how these words sound, that God's intent here was to be harsh or to kind of slap Job down. I don't believe that because as the rest of the story unfolds, just the last one, two chapters here. God actually declares that Job was innocent through all this. Job did no wrong. God restores everything that Job had doublefold. Matter of fact, this is one of my favorite parts of the scripture. God goes to the church friends and says, get over there and apologize to him. I love that. God tells the church, go over there and apologize to him. So God's, God's obviously not angry at Job. God's obviously not trying to, you know, to slap him down. So why the harshness? Why the harsh sounding? Very simply, 
Simple. It's just reality. It's just the truth. You see, folks, an eternal story is unfolding. And that eternal story is made up of all kinds of things, all kinds of pieces. And you and I are, are right here, a dot in the midst of this story. And there are pieces of it we're just not going to be able to make sense out of. We can't make sense out of it because we don't like it. We can't make sense out of it because we don't agree with it. We can't make sense out of it because we don't want it. We can't make sense out of it because it's not the way I would have done it. But we are working with almost no knowledge. We are working with almost no understanding. So God's not being harsh when he says, when you rise up and accuse me. That's a statement of your inability, not mine. I have four kids. I took all four of those children. Karen wouldn't do this. She wanted me to be saddled with this blame. Uh, I took all four of my kids to get their immunizations, you know, growing up. I think it starts with like at six months and then 18 months and I think it ends somewhere around four. But but I took them to get their immunizations, you know, and now maybe not so much at six months. By about 18 months, they figure, you know what? I don't like that building. I don't like the people in that building and I don't like what they're going to do to me in that building. But look at this. Me, their good and loving father is taking them into that building to the people they don't want to see. And literally holding them still while they get stuck. Now, how does an 18-month-old child process this? All they know is they're getting hurt. All they know is they're somewhere they don't want to be. And to the best they can tell, the person they trust the most is holding them down. And letting it happen. Now, I can fix this for my kids. You know, I, I can sit that when we get back out to the car, I can, you know, buckle them into the child seat there and then I can explain to them disease. And, and then I can explain to them an immunization and what an immunization does. Is an 18 month old going to get that? Are there any words, any illustrate, anything under the sun that I'm going to use to help an 18 month old child understand disease and immunizations? Not at all. All they can do is trust that I'm good. That's all they got in that moment right there. Now, folks, I'm not trying to say, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that, that the Holocaust or an abusive parent or, or betrayal, I'm not trying to say that's an immunization and God holds us down while we get it. What I am saying is that there are a multitude of things going on all around us. It's not that God won't explain it. We're not going to get it. We simply do not have the context, the beginning, the end, and everything going on, not only in the physical world, but in the spiritual world. God can't explain it. There's no way we're going to get it. There's no way we're going to understand it. Now, my first response to that would be, well, that, that, wait a minute, that's not fair. Your illustration was about an 18-month-old. Of course an 18-month-old can't understand. That's a baby. But I'm not an 18-month-old. I can understand things. God should explain it. Folks, your intelligence level at the age of, say, 60, after you've lived life, learned a lot about life, you had the school of hard knocks and all that, your intelligence level is about 10,000 plus miles from God. And it's about that far from the two-year-old. It really is. I know I am much smarter than a two-year-old in this spectrum. Compared to God, not really any further along than the two-year-old. We're not going to get it. We're not going to understand it. All we can do is trust the goodness 
of our Father. So on the one hand, God says, I'm not going to explain it because you're not going to get it. You don't have the pieces to process this. But here's the second answer. I'm going to do good in your life through this. Two verses, folks, that you should memorize, that you should have close to you at all times. Genesis 50.20 and Romans 8.28. Very similar verses. Genesis 50.20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now the you here is Joseph talking to his brothers, and it's on this basis that he forgives his brothers. His brothers who, who physically abused him, who betrayed him, who sold him into slavery. God, can you imagine your own family selling you into slavery? That's a deep hurt. But Joseph had come to this place in his life where he realized, you know, ultimately, people and evil and circumstances and situations, they're not in control of my life. God is. So what you meant for evil, my God meant for good. My father worked for good in my life. Now, here's the beautiful thing about this verse, folks. The you there, for Joseph, that was brothers. But you can substitute anything into the you. It could be your parents. It could be your friends. It could be your co-workers. It could be that boss. It could be that job. It could be that natural disaster. It could be anything out there in the world that comes against you, that wrongs you. Whatever they did for evil, whatever they did for wrong, the bottom line is they're not in control. The bottom line is God picks it up and makes sure it will be used for good in your life. Now Romans 8.28 takes this verse and elaborates on it just a little bit. You know that verse. It says, and we know... Oh, folks, if you would pray for one thing this week, pray that you have the conviction Paul has. Hey, God, could I have the kind of faith, the kind of conviction that Paul had that in the, in the midst of suffering, he could say, and I know, I know that all things, all things, that includes what? It's not a trick question. Includes all things. Anything and everything that has happened, anything and everything that will happen, anything and everything that is going on in your life right now, we know, I know that all things work together for the good. Notice it says the good. It doesn't say all things work out good. Some people misinterpret that verse that way. Because not everything works out good, does it? No, folks, some things work out horribly. I mean, that's not at all what I'd want to see as the conclusion of that matter. But everything will work out for the good for those who two things, there's a condition, who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now, what's it mean to love God? Jesus says very simply, those who love me will obey me. You know, we come in here, we, we sing it in our songs. We say, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. But I want to take that love for Jesus and I want to head into the week and I want to have a passion. That love should have a, a passion. It should drive me to want to know what God says. To want to learn what God says so that I can obey what God says. Folks, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Jesus begins to ring hollow, begins to be shallow when there's no obedience connected to it. So, so if, if I want this promise that God's going to work all things for good in my life, I've got to love him, which Jesus defines as obedience. And, and secondly, I've got to be called according to his purpose. You know, a simple way to understand that when you pray tomorrow, you know, what loves to wake up in the morning. Hey, God, here's my agenda for today. Now you come get inside it and make it what it should be. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous that is? You know, I want the eternal, transcendent, high, powerful, all-knowing, all-powerful God to come fit into my agenda, which is imperfect and very, very temporary. As a matter of fact, by Tuesday, some of the things I don't even like about my agenda on Monday. 
I don't even like my agenda. And yet I want God to come get inside my agenda. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense that I go and seek to how to get inside of God's agenda? His agenda that is eternal. His agenda that is perfect. His agenda that never needs to be changed because he was working with wrong information when he made it. You know, so I want to be fitting into God's purposes. I want to be fitting into side of God's agenda. And God says, when you love me, when you're seeking to be involved in my agenda, then you know I'm working all things for the good. Verse 29 and 30, by the way, define the good. When this whole life is all said and done, you know what all those things will do? What God's going to use all those things for? He's going to use them to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So that when this whole process is done, when you go and stand before God, when you stand there for reward, you're going to look just like Jesus. Isn't that incredible? God says, hey, this thing you're going through won't be wasted. Hey, you're not just rolling down the stream of life hoping to survive the next hit. I'll use every single hit, the good things and the bad things, to polish, to shape, to conform, so that when you're done, you look just like my son. That's God's answer to evil. That's what he's doing. Now, real quickly, what hits Romans 8, 28? What hits Genesis 50, 20? There's a lot of things that come at us there. They can come from three different places. One, they can come from God. Now, God doesn't do evil. He'll use the evil that's going on in the world. God doesn't sin. God doesn't send sin. But God will use the events of this world. He'll use the circumstance to discipline. He disciplines primarily, not only, but primarily for two reasons. One, to strengthen and to prove our faith. And two, he uses discipline when we are sinning. You know, folks, love never is okay with wrong. And so when I'm engaging in wrong, when I'm especially engaging in habitual wrong, God's going to discipline. So sometimes the things we're feeling in life are because God's disciplining. A second reason God or a second reason we might be feeling some harsh things in life is because of Satan. Satan attacks. Scripture seeks, says he wants to destroy us. The third reason things hit us in life is because we live in a fallen world. Folks, sometimes we're enduring things and it's not because Satan's after us. It's not because God's disciplining us. It's just because we live in a fallen world. In a fallen world, things break. In a fallen world, things don't work like they're supposed to. But here's how Genesis 50, 20, how Romans 8, 28 work. As these things come at me and begin to land in my life, sometimes I can figure out which one is which. Sometimes I can say, you know, I think I'm under the discipline of God. You know what? Sometimes that just, that just feels like satanic attack. Sometimes we can tell. Sometimes I can't tell why this is happening, why it's coming. But you know what? No matter what is coming into my life, it flows through Romans 8, 28. Before it touches me, it has the promise of God that he's going to use it. Folks, evil never wins the day. So I say, God, where are you in evil? You know what? I can't, I can't explain it all to you. Because you're not going to get it. You don't have the mind, the things that it takes to understand what is going on here. But I promise you this. Whatever you see, whatever you're dealing with, I will use for good in your life. And when I'm done, you're going to look just like my son. Folks, that's God's answer to evil. That's pretty much it. Now, where does evil come from? I said a moment ago, God doesn't send evil. He's not the author of evil. So where did it come from? God did not create evil. What God created was a perfect world. And he created you and me in a perfect relationship with him. We had a wonderful world, a wonderful relationship with God. But God did something unique when he created us, very different than what he did with the rocks and the trees and the skies and the seas. 
Very different than what he did with the birds and the fish and the animals. Everything I just mentioned, everything in the universe just does what it's designed to do. At best, it it works inside of instinctual responses. Do you realize nothing in the universe can do what you and I can do? You know what you and I can do? We can say, this is good, this is better, this is best. Nothing in all of the universe can do that. Nothing in all the universe can say, this is right and this is wrong. So you and I are created in the image of God. Now, you, we, we can unwrap that. Being created in the image of God means a, a variety of things for our lives. But one of those is that we have a volition. We have a will. We can make choices. We can see and determine good and better and best. We can see and determine right and wrong. And God created us free. He created us with the ability to do this so that we would freely choose Him. Freely choose to worship, to love, to honor, and to serve Him. A genuine relationship. It's not quite the same relationship when we're all we're doing is running the labyrinth created for us. When we're all we're doing is, is responding how we were instinctually created to respond. We have a choice. But now a choice implies choices, doesn't it? It implies there's a place where I choose God and there's a place where I don't. And God gave that choice to us in the tree. In the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one tree was the place where I'd say, I'm not going to eat of that. That would not honor and love and respect my good God. But God gave that tree where we could make that choice. I don't want that. I don't want my way. I want God and I want His way. Now, some people think, well, gosh, if God wouldn't have put the tree there, we wouldn't be in this mess. God, God shouldn't have put that temptation there. And we make it into this huge temptation. I mean, there was two trees on the whole planet. The good one and the bad one. Ah, every day I'm confronted with that lure, that temptation of the bad one. Folks, God heavily stacked the odds in our favor. We were living in a perfect world. We were living in a perfect face-to-face relationship with Him. And there wasn't two trees. There was all the trees that covered the planet. And God said, all the trees. As a matter of fact, everything on this planet is yours. Except one tree. Why did He put it there? Because that was my choice. That's where I choose not my way, but God's way. And what did we do? You know, I think my way would be better. I think I'm a lot smarter. I I, I don't want God holding out on me. I don't want God holding things from me. I'm going to take my way. And folks, that choice is what introduced, well, ultimately, sweat and weeds, (laughs) death, turmoil. Every single problem on this planet rolls out of that choice. Even what we call natural disasters. It was the introduction of sin and our choice in this world that turned animals against animals. That brings tornadoes and earthquakes and floods. Everything comes from our sinful choice. Where does sin come? Our evil choice. Well, God shouldn't have given us that choice. Now, then we'd just be mindless beings. We're created in His image to choose Him. And the incredible thing is, even though we chose away from Him, because we were so smart and could do it better ourselves, God gives us the choice to be rescued from it. He provides a way out of that choice. So where does evil come from? It comes from our sin. We did this to the planet. Now, is God still in control? 
You know, did he did he know we were going to do that with the tree? Yes, he knew. Yes, he's still in control. And again, I've really mostly already answered this question in saying that no matter what is going on, evil doesn't get the final say. Evil doesn't get the final stamp. Ultimately, God determines the end of a situation. And he uses it for his purposes. So, yes, God is in control. But to take it a step even further, uh, folks, I would refer you to Job chapter 1 and 2. Remember, first two chapters ever written. And in these two chapters, we're introduced to God. We're introduced to Satan. We're introduced to evil and suffering coming against man. And in that, we see God literally draw boundaries. He, he, Satan who lives in rebellion, who fights against God. But even in that, God says, you can't go past here. This is your limit. This is your boundary. Folks, don't ever. The world does. Religions tend to do this. Don't ever picture God and Satan in some big epic battle. There, there's not a big battle between God and Satan. There's not a big battle between good and evil. God is not in a battle. All God's got to do is Satan be gone and he's blown up. There's no battle, there's no sweat, there's no scars, there's no wounds that, that Satan has inflicted that were not by God's design. Satan only works in light of what God is going to do and what God is going to use. So this is not a big battle, they're duking it out to the end. God is in total control. And, and, and then lastly, why doesn't he stop it then? If he's in control and he's loving, why does, why does he allow you know, a little girl to cross the street and get hit by a car. Well, why does he allow? And again, we can just start down our list of things again. So we can say, why doesn't God stop it? It being the situation. Or we can say, why doesn't God stop it? The whole entire mess. Why doesn't he just stop it? Folks, God has in his wisdom that is beyond ours. He is allowing our choices to run a course. There is a story unfolding here that he is allowing that in the end demonstrates his justice, demonstrates his wisdom, is going to demonstrate his grace and his perfection. It will be for our good. He has his purposes in allowing this to run its course. But you know, there's another aspect to this. Why doesn't God stop it? Why doesn't he stop the whole thing? Because folks, when he stops it, it's over. Listen to this. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord does not delay His promise. He's not delaying His promise to deal with evil. He's not delaying His promise to reward good and to, and to punish wrong and to make wrongs right and to bring justice. He's not delaying that, as some understand delay. But He is patient. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Folks, when God moves to stop evil, and He's going to, that will close the door. Look at that word. On billions of people being rescued from their choices. They will move into a fiery judgment. God is going to deal with evil. He is going to reward good. Justice is going to be done. But He does that at the end. And when it's the end, no more. No more get in. Now folks, this past year, the last four, five, six months, we've seen a lot of people come to Christ in this church. 
We've seen a couple hundred people make a decision for faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's rewind a little bit and let's say God finally came. He finally stepped forward and did this on June 1st of 2010. That means for the couple hundred people that came to Christ in these last couple months. They didn't come to Christ. They entered a fiery judgment. You understand now what what God says there is. It's not it's not my delay. It's not my lack of control. It's not my lack of concern for what evil is doing in this world. It is my patience. That keeps me waiting. Now, folks, God knows when the last one comes in. That 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 day is set. It is going to happen. There will be a day when it comes and, and no more. But right now he's waiting. It's out of patience. You know, if you're sitting here today and you don't have a relationship with God, it's his patience that he's not dealing with the evil and the suffering, because when he deals with it, you're not ready for that moment. You're not ready for what justice looks like. Folks, I don't know if I have answered all the questions. It is a difficult debate to have out there in the world at times with people about about evil and suffering. But I'll tell you something, I I have come, this is not as much a a passage, a verse I would use in a debate, but one that, that bolsters and strengthens my own faith. When I come to those places where I don't understand why, where I, I wonder where, God, how come, God, why not yet? God, when I come to those places where I just can't put it together and make sense, there is a a passage that I hold on to. And and it's a passage given by a man who is known as the smartest man on the earth. Who's that? Solomon. Solomon, wisest guy that ever lived. And Solomon sought things out. He sought some things out in some good ways. He sought some things out in some very wrong ways. He tried to understand life. He tried to understand. He would have tried to understand evil and suffering. And, And when he tried to put it all together, questions answered, questions unanswered. This is what he walked away with. Look at this passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. When all has been heard, we have debated, we have discussed, we have read, we've gone back and forth about this. The conclusion is this. Fear God. And keep his commands. Wait a minute. Why, Why would I fear God and keep his? He hasn't answered all my questions. He, he, he didn't explain why this and why that happened. There. Why, why, why would I do that? Very simply, because God is going to bring every act to judgment. Everything we're questioning, everywhere we think that's unfair, that's not right. What happened there? Every act, every single one is going to be brought to judgment, including every. What's that say? There's a lot of pain in this room right now. Because of evil that's been done in the dark. Because of evil that's been in the hidden places. It was so dark, it was so hidden, you thought. God can't be here. Every hidden thing. Whether good or evil. It's all going to be dealt with. Folks, what helps you step in tomorrow is not 
the answer to everything. What will help you live tomorrow? Fear God and keep His commands. And leave all that unanswered stuff to Him. Let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning. And God, there's a part of this series, this series on God questions, where we've looked at the existence of God and the, the, the truth of Scripture, the one way to heaven through Jesus, today evil and suffering. And, and God, we've took on these questions to shore up our own faith. But, but God, we've wanted to be able to debate, to be quite honest. We, we want to go out into the world and we want to be a good witness and we want to answer their questions. And Lord, this is a place the world is asking the question over and over, day after day. And Lord, while I want us to be encouraged and motivated to learn and develop answers and to be able to debate, God, this is genuinely a place our own faith needs to be shored up. God, many of us in this room have stood in the shadow of evil and suffering. Maybe all of us at one time or another have said, why, God? God, why haven't you, why haven't you done something yet? We have prayed and we have prayed and we have prayed and the wrong has gone on and it has gone on and it has gone on. Lord, may nothing bring us to the place of knowing that whether we understand or can put it together, we simply trust you are good. May we trust you are good. And have the faith to hold on to you while we leave that which we cannot handle in your hands. We ask for this help in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.